This podcast is brought to you by the Association for Diplomatic Studies and Training, or ADST. For more, check out our website at adst.org. ADST, American Diplomacy, Warts and All. Eileen Malloy served as a U.S. ambassador to Russia in the late 1980s. She helped to carry out the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, the first treaty between the U.S. and USSR that required the destruction of nuclear missiles. In practice, this involved U.S. inspection of Soviet facilities, which Malloy facilitated. In the following podcast, she discusses her unexpected stay in Ulan Ude, Siberia, in January. If you remember President Reagan's famous phrase, yeah. trust but verify, doverai no praverai in Russian, um, in order to get political support in the United States, there had to be a vigorous inspection angle to the treaty. We couldn't just trust the Soviets when they said that they had eliminated these missiles. We had to have American teams go in and visit sites to make sure that they weren't there, that they weren't deployed. And they had to be able to land either in Moscow or the portal that was in Siberia, announce where they wanted to go anywhere in the Soviet Union and reach it within a certain number of hours. So it was very complex. So we were the ones who translated, uh, met them at the airport, made sure that the U.S. military plane was serviced, um, just keep the whole thing going. And then whenever there was a dispute, we would conduct negotiations with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. But it was all virgin terrain. Nobody had ever done this before, so we were making it up as we went along. The, the flights in and out um, would come into two sites. Moscow was one, and then in the Siberian town of Ulan Ude, which is just above the Mongolian border, was the eastern portal. And flights would come from Yokota Air Force Base in Japan and land there. The logic was that you had to be able to reach whatever site we said we wanted to inspect within a certain number of hours, and it couldn't be done if you just used Moscow. So running and maintaining that site in Ulan Ude was a huge challenge. We mentioned that Jane Miller Floyd, her husband, uh, two and eventually three children, ran that site. They were, you know, family Robinson out there in the middle of nowhere and uh, had a great time. But when they had their third child and we needed to bring them back to Moscow because um, we didn't feel comfortable having an infant out in some place where we had no control over medical situation. That meant we had to cycle out there to cover um, that place. And that was a huge challenge because it would take us more than 24 hours to reach it, which would let the Soviets know that we were sending diplomatic escorts because we were about to have a surprise unannounced inspection. Um, so it was a bit difficult to maintain that. and. One time, I went out with um, my whole family. So when I had to go back a second time to meet an unannounced inspection, Captain Sandy Schmidt went with me 
and the two of us, because the Floyd family has now left, were responsible for all the diplomatic escort duties, which involved getting up an hour before we had to go to the airport to try and thaw out the Jeep, which was frozen solid because it's minus 30 degrees in Siberia, in the garage. And you have to do all these complex things to even get the Soviet Jeep running, get ourselves out to the airport, see off the team to their inspection site, hand them over to their Soviet handlers. And then we were done for two days, or so we thought. And the Air Force plane came trundling in over the horizon, these enormous, I think, what, C-130s, you know, the big transport planes. And it is so cold, and the runway is in such bad condition that when it lands, it breaks a strut. So we get the team sent off, and we start to figure out what to do with the plane. And as fast as we can try and get it repaired, the plane starts to freeze. There's no hangars. It's totally out in the open in Siberia. And every system on the plane that has any kind of fluid starts to freeze and break. And so they realize they, the only thing they can do is just open every drain, everything, before it, and, and leave it there. And we had to order another plane out of Yokota. And it would take two days to get there with a repair crew. And Sandy and I, though we both speak Russian, this is very difficult because my Foreign Service uh, language instruction does not include aeronautical engineering terms and everything. So we are, we spend two days standing unprotected on a tarmac in Siberia trying to help with this. And I end up with frostbite across my cheeks. And there's some great pictures of us desperately trying to keep warm and all this. And we actually got to be pretty good buddies with the airport people throughout all of this. But the thing that I was most pleased with is the crew of the plane. Of course, that's nothing to do. I mean, they, they don't know how to repair a plane. Yeah. And they're trapped there for two days, unexpectedly. So we feed them, we make arrangements for them to get hotel rooms. Um, and there's nothing much going on, so they want to go for a walk. And they, they hadn't planned to even do, get off the plane, so they don't have gear parkas or stuff to walk around. What they're wearing are these high-altitude suits developed by the Air Force. So basically, you you plug in a hot air tube and it blows up like you know, like a Michelin Man, only not quite like that much. But it's that hot air that keeps you warm. But it, it's quite an odd sight. So we are walking around town with this gaggle of ETs in these big suits, and they're all you know and there's a winter ice festival going on with, it seemed like the whole town out building ice castles and sliding down these enormous runs of ice on rugs and stuff. And so the flight crew gets into it and starts playing with people. And they had a great time. And I think that little interaction did more for Soviet-American relations than anything else because they actually got to talk to people. Um, People could see that they weren't monsters. And it was... A really hard two days, but it was interesting. The um, replacement plane arrived and um, fixed the original plane. The replacement plane took off, went back to Yokota, and right at that moment the team returned, having done their inspection. They're oblivious to the fact that this plane has been trapped there the whole time. They board the plane, and they're disgruntled that the meals they ordered are not there. Of course, they don't recognize that the plane's been there the whole time. And then the challenge is to get the plane off the ground because it now has two days of ice and snow on it, and there's no de-icing capacity. They brought out a truck and a man with a hand pump 
and a garden hose who was trying to spray. And of course, by the time he got one wing done, the previous wing was frozen. So the pilot decides to do it the old-fashioned way. And because they had to bring in English-speaking air traffic controllers when they knew a flight was coming, but they weren't normally there, there was no English-speaking air traffic controller. So we couldn't communicate what this pilot was going to do. So he just said, tell him I'm leaving. So he turned out, went to the end of the runway, gunned his engines, still completely covered with ice and snow, roared all the way to the end of the runway and hit his brakes so that everything on it would fly off and clear himself of ice and snow. Well, of course, the Soviets then thought he had crashed and started roaring out to the end of the runway with all the rescue equipment. He just turns around now going totally in the wrong direction from the air traffic controller, takes off that way. Uh And they got off to Yokota, and I'm left with this screaming mob of angry airport people about what this pilot has done and why did he go the wrong direction and all all these other things. But what it showed me was how abysmally ill-equipped the infrastructure was in those days, that you could have a major regional airport in Siberia with no de-icing capacity and no hangars. And I think we realized from that how badly broken the system was. For me, it was the beginning of seeing behind that facade of the super adversary to what was really there. We then um, finally were going to get to go home three days late to Moscow, so Captain Schmidt and I packed up, went to the airport to board an Aeroflot flight back Mm -hmm. to Moscow, we were so relieved to be going home when we got on this plane and went roaring down the runway. And right as we were about to lift off, one of the tires exploded. And the plane, the pilot managed to save it. We were this close from crashing and burning there. And we were rather shaken up by that. And so now we're left with no accommodation, no flights until the next day. It's totally stranded, and everyone else on the plane just goes into the terminal, lies down on the floor to go to sleep. But we being, um, you know, evil foreign diplomats, they don't want to leave us running loose for the night. So they tell us we must go back into town. You know, there's no taxis or anything, so uh, Sandy and I wander around out front. We always were under escort, but they were not about to drive us. And the official vehicle we had restored in the garage back in town so it could freeze up for another two months. So the only way we could finally get back into town was somebody had gotten married, and there was one of these great long Gilles limos that... uh, delivers wedding parties. I don't know if you've ever seen these things. They're all decorated, and they have like a little baby doll tied to the front and everything. And so this guy says he'll take us into town. We didn't notice until we were in the car that the driver was dead drunk. So here we are roaring back into town, rolling around the back of this Gilles with this guy who's just going all over the road. and Having just survived almost a plane crash, we thought we wouldn't make it into town, but we did. And he didn't even want to be paid. And at that point, Sandy and I thought, well, nothing can get us now. We're, we're just can't be harmed by anything. And the little ladies at the pensionaire where we um, had our operations agreed to let us go back into our room, even though we didn't have official Soviet reservations. And the next morning we got up, went back to the airport, got on the plane, and finally got home to Moscow. ADST is an independent, non-profit organization located in Arlington, Virginia. 
ADST's oral history collection, begun in 1986, contains over 2,500 oral histories, unveiling the horrifying, thought-provoking, and the absurd events that helped shape foreign policy. If you have enjoyed listening to this podcast, please make a tax-deductible donation to allow ADST to continue its work at www.adst.org.